So last week we left off in the middle of a conversation. It wasn't a great place to end, but we ran out of time between Jesus and Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Uh, he's a member of what's called the Sanhedrin. It's the 70 leading religious uh, teachers of the day. It's kind of like the Jewish Supreme Court. Nicodemus is on that. He's a member of that, and he approaches Jesus, uh, I assume, for some spiritual input. Jesus never even gives him a chance to ask a question. He takes control of the conversation really quickly, and he says this to Nicodemus. It's a bomb for a Jewish man to hear this. If anyone wants to, hear, if anyone wants to enter the kingdom of God, he must be born again. So for Nicodemus, he would think, well, as a Jew, I was born into the kingdom of God. I was born into the family of God. My parents are Jews. My grandparents are Jews. My great-grandparents are Jews. What it means to be a Jew is to be part of the chosen people. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. That's a sign of this covenant that I'm in with God. What are you saying that I have to be born again? And he doesn't understand at all. And he talks about climbing back in his mother's womb. And Jesus says, time out. You're, you're misunderstanding. And he tries to paint the picture for Nicodemus using some, um, some, some imagery that Nicodemus would know. Draws on the Old Testament. Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, would be very familiar with the Old Testament. So he uses a passage from Ezekiel that talks about being born of water and born of the Spirit to say that that's what I mean by being born again. It's this new thing that has to happen. It's an internal, it's a spiritual reality. It has nothing to do with who your parents are or what your ethnicity is. That, that's not sufficient for entering, entering the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is still not understanding. And Jesus says, listen, just like you don't understand the wind... You don't have to understand this either, and you can still receive. You can still feel the wind without understanding the wind. And what Jesus is trying to say to Nicodemus is you can still experience being born again, even if you can't explain the whole thing. And that's where we're going to pick up in verse 9. How can this be, Nicodemus asked. So he's continuing to be confused. And Jesus says, you're Israel's teacher, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people don't accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you don't believe them. How then would you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. We'll pause there. So what I hear here in Jesus, or what I hear is, is two notes. He's frustrated and I think he's extending compassion. I think he's both frustrated and, and he's compassionate towards Nicodemus. The frustrating, the frustrated side of Jesus, and I think it's legitimate, is he's saying, this is kind of your job. You're one of Israel's leading teachers, and you don't understand that these are basics. This is 101. This is, in order to be in a right relationship with God, you have to be born again. Your job as one of Israel's teachers is to teach people how to relate rightly to God, and you don't understand this basic concept. And that's, that doesn't speak well for the spiritual state of our nation if our leaders don't understand this. I'm using imagery that I think you'd understand. I'm talking about being born. I'm talking about the wind. I'm talking about water. I'm using Old Testament imagery that you should know as a Pharisee. And you're not getting any of it. If you don't get those earthly things that I'm talking about, there's no way you're going to get the spiritual realities behind them. I think he's a bit frustrated, but he continues to be. It's a picture of, to me of this good shepherd who pursues the sheep who are lost. He continues to try to engage Nicodemus and to help Nicodemus understand. He doesn't kind of wash his hands and say, you're an idiot. You're never going to get it. He doesn't move on to somebody who's brighter or someone who's even more receptive. I think he's seeing in Nicodemus a genuine desire to, to understand. And so he's, he says to him, I, I need you to trust me. I need you to believe me. I'm talking about things that I personally know. When Jesus refers to himself, he uses that phrase, son of man. He never calls himself the Messiah. 
that was a loaded term. Everybody had a picture of what that meant. So Jesus doesn't use it. He uses son of man. It's more ambiguous and it allows him to fill out the picture of who that is. It gives him a little bit more freedom to be who he is versus other people putting these expectations on him. If he says Messiah, he says the son of man, I came from heaven. I know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these spiritual, these heavenly realities. I've been there. I'm telling you, just trust me. Believe me. And then he gives another example. Again, I think you see it's this good shepherd pursuing lost sheep. I'm going to give you another picture to help you understand what I'm talking about. Verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have life in him, eternal life in him. So Jesus is saying here, we're both Jews. Nicodemus most likely has the first five books of the Bible memorized. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's a lot. So he would know this story. This story is from Numbers 21. We probably don't have all of that memorized. So here's the story. They, that's the Israelites, they're wandering in the desert, traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. So Edom is a nation in God says you can't go through it. You've got to go around it. It's a longer way around. Going through would have been a shortcut. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. That's the manna that they were eating. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a real snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. It's kind of a weird story. It's true. And Jesus is drawing on that with Nicodemus. Hey, you didn't quite understand what it meant to be born again. Let me give you a different picture. The Son of Man. He's going to be lifted up. And everyone who believes in Him will inherit eternal life. So when Nicodemus hears lifted up, that word means exalted. So what he's thinking is this, when the Son of Man is exalted, that's something that he would understand. People will believe in Him and inherit eternal life. And this is the first time eternal life has been used in John's gospel, don't just think about life that never ends, how long it is, but think it's a different kind of life. Physical birth produces physical life. Spiritual birth or being born again produces spiritual life. Jesus doesn't give us a whole lot on what eternal life means. We'll see that more as we read through John. So we'll leave that for now. But that's the promise to enter the kingdom of God, to see the kingdom of God, to enter the kingdom of heaven, to see the kingdom of heaven. To be born again, to receive eternal life, those are different ways of saying the same thing. We would say it's getting saved, becoming a Christian. And we know, Nicodemus doesn't know this at the time, but we know when Jesus says the Son of Man must be lifted up, we know he's not just talking about him being exalted or him being glorified, he's also talking about the way that he would die. Just like this bronze snake was attached to a pole, so Jesus would be nailed to a cross. And to be lifted up speaks to the way that he would die and through his death, people would receive life. Nicodemus doesn't understand that at the time. He's actually around when Jesus dies. In John 19, I think it's 39, 
he and one of his buddies on the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea, they take Jesus' body and they put it in a tomb. And it may have been at that point, maybe some of the pieces started falling in place for Nicodemus. We don't know. But at this point, he wouldn't have understood fully what Jesus said. But we do. Looking at from from our vantage point, we know Jesus was not just talking about being exalted, but he was talking about being crucified and that his death is what would draw people. It was what would produce life in people. Now, now Jesus explains to Nicodemus some of what's going on behind that picture of the son of man being lifted up for God. So loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him, to save the world through the Son. And what you see there is super important. You see God's desire and you see God's motivation. And if you misunderstand either one of these things, you're going to misunderstand God and you're going to misunderstand the Bible. doesn't mean you're going to hell. It just means you're going to misunderstand God and you're going to misunderstand the Bible. If you miss God's desire and if you miss God's motivation, his desire plainly is to save the world. That may seem very obvious to you. But that's his desire, for God so loved the world. God didn't send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Whoever believes in the Son, Jew or Gentile, man or woman, rich or poor, young or old, black or white, doesn't matter. Whoever believes, salvation is open to everyone. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all men and women to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. It's important that we get that, the scope of, of God's care is universal. There's no one who he has created whom he's saying, "Uh, that's fine, I don't care about them. They can burn. Everyone whom he's created, he desires to be reconciled to himself. His desire is for the salvation of everyone. And his motivation is love. This deep and profound love that God has for the world. New Testament love is defined as doing what's best for someone else even at great personal cost. Simplify that. It's preferring another. New Testament love, don't think about romance. That's a different category. This New Testament love that God has for us is His willingness to prefer us. And notice who He's preferring us over. His Son. You think about that. What kind of Father in heaven do we have who prefers us Wicked, fallen, sinful us over his perfect son. For the Father, for God, so preferred the world that whoever believes in him, the son, will have eternal life. God's motivation is love. His desire is salvation of all. Don't miss either one of those. If you misunderstand either of those two points, then you're going to misunderstand God and you're going to misunderstand the Bible. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the most important events to ever happen in the history of the universe. They're pivotal. Everything hinges on that pivot of Jesus' death and resurrection. And the heart behind that most pivotal event is the love of God. You cannot overemphasize the love of God. We need to rightly define the love of God, but you cannot overemphasize it. In your mind, if you think of God's actions in the world and, what, and you're not thinking this is motivated by his love for the world, you may be missing something. When you think about God's actions in your own life, if you're not thinking this is motivated by his love for me, 
And you might be missing something. When you look at other people, if what comes to your mind is not God desires them to be saved, God desires them to be reconciled, regardless of what you think or feel about them, regardless of how good or bad they happen to be living, if you think about them anything other than Jesus died for them, God desires for them to be saved, you may be missing something. The most important things, I think, for us to walk away from today. God desires the salvation of everyone. God's motivation is this deep and profound love, this preferring choosing of us, even over his own son. And so the question maybe then becomes, well, he's God. And if he desires for everyone to be saved, then how come everybody's not? The guys who are reading this for the first time, 50 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, would look around and go, there's plenty of people. Plenty of people who aren't in any kind of right relationship with God. If, if this is what he wanted, if that's his desire and he's God, then why don't we see it happening? And Jesus addresses that starting in verse 18. Whoever believes in him, that's the son, that's Jesus, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. You understand that? Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned. Whoever does not believe in Jesus stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but the people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly that what they've done has been done in the sight of God. So think back to Israelites in the desert. You're one of them. You get bitten by a snake. There's no antivenin. You're going to die. There's no cure. Once you've been bitten, your death warrant has been signed. You're a dead man, dead woman walking. You're not going to fall down immediately and die. But that poison is working through your body. It's just a matter of time, whether it's a day or a week, however long it takes for that poison to work all the way through your body to kill you. But your death sentence was proclaimed the moment you were bitten. As soon as that poison was injected into you and there is no cure, you're dead. You're already condemned. Does that make sense? So the same thing is true for us. When we sin, when we rebel against God, when we move in our own way, when we're arrogant, when we're proud, when we're deceitful, when we're rebellious, when we're selfish, those acts cut us off from God and he's the source of life. We don't die immediately, but our death warrant's been signed. The poison of sin is working its way through our bodies, and it's just a matter of time. It's a day, or it's a week, or it's 50 years, but it's a matter of time before that poison kills us, physically and spiritually. There is no cure. There is no antidote. We stand condemned as soon as we sin because we've cut ourselves off. From the source of life, who is God. Some of you maybe work in your yard some. You might have roses, prune a rose. looks beautiful right when you cut it. It's in the process of dying. As soon as you remove that rose from the bush, it looks great right when you cut it. Go back in a couple of days. It's dead. You've removed it from its source of life. That's what sin does to us. It cuts us off from our source of life. We don't know it necessarily consciously immediately. But that death sentence has already been pronounced. We're dead men and dead women who are walking. 
Those Israelites, there's no cure. There's no antivenin for this snake bite. And they cry out to Moses and say, Tell, ask God to have mercy on us. And Moses prays and God says, all right, let's do this. Create a Make a bronze snake and put it on a pole and everyone who looks at it will be healed. There's no connection between looking at a snake and being healed of poison, but that's what God says to do. And it's a gracious and merciful act on his part. The people deserve to die. And we think, well, they're just complaining a little bit. They weren't. They didn't trust him. Read Exodus 7, 8, 9, and 10, this massive deliverance that God worked on behalf of the Israelites. These plagues, these miracles that they'd seen, they walked through the Red Sea and it was dry. Like, you think about that. They walked through a miracle. And now they don't trust Him. Every morning they wake up and they open their tent flaps and there's food on the ground, this manna. They didn't work for it. They didn't pay for it. They didn't sow it. They didn't reap it. They just get to enjoy it. And they're griping. This food isn't good. They're living in the desert. What else do they think they're going to eat? And they're griping. They're grumbling against God. They don't trust His character. You bringing us out here to kill us, they're asking? They deserve to die. And God in His mercy says, here's a way. You should be judged for your sin and here's a way. I'm going to make provision for you. You just look at that snake. That's an act of faith. You look at that snake and you're going to be healed. It has the same thing for us. We all deserve to die. It's called God's wrath. It's His righteous anger over sin. And we all deserve to, to receive His wrath because we've all sinned. And what He says is, rather than that, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to send my Son and He's going to die. And if you believe in Him, then you'll be healed, you'll be forgiven, you'll be saved. It's the same thing. It's an act of grace on God's part. And He's looking for faith from us just to trust in Jesus and that His death is sufficient to reconcile us to God. Can you imagine if one of these Israelites got bit by a snake and maybe they create these, these uh, enterprising Israelites create these cottage industries and they're selling vegetables and probiotics and putting people on training plans and saying, hey, if you, ha- you can do all this and it'll, it'll cure you, it'll heal you. You can't out-health the venom of a snake. You can't do it. It doesn't work that way. You can eat as many carrots as you want. It's not going to counteract the poison. We do the same thing. We've sinned. We're cut off from the Lord. And then we try to outrighteous our sin. Let me see how many old ladies I can help cross the street. Let me see how much Bible I can read. Let me see how nice I can be to other people. It doesn't work that way. You can't outrighteous your sin. Your good acts don't counteract the sin that we've all committed. We're cut off in in our only hope. Just like the Israelites, their only hope, the only thing they could do is to look at a snake. The only thing we can do is believe in a son. And so the question for us, do you and do I? Why does everybody not, why is everybody not saved if that's God's desire? Because some people won't look at the snake. Because some people won't believe in the son. Jesus switches Metaphors, And he starts using light and dark. And it refers back to John chapter 1, verse 9, where he says the true light that gives light to everyone. There's that whole that concept again. To everyone has come into the world. The world doesn't recognize this light, though. He's come to his own, but his own don't receive him. But to anyone who does receive him, he gives the right to become children of God. Different way of saying anyone who believes in the Son will inherit eternal life. Different way of saying the same thing. And 
what Jesus would say to us. Why is everyone not saved if that's the desire of the Father, if that's the heart of God? It's this profound love that He has for everyone that He's created. He's made a way for us to be reconciled to Him. Then why are there people still on the outside? And He would say, because we love the darkness instead of the light. The light's come. But some of us would rather stay in the dark because our deeds are evil. And if we come into the light, then we'll be exposed. And we don't want our wickedness or our helplessness or our powerlessness or our depravity, whatever word you want to use, we don't want that exposed. So we're going to stay in the darkness. I'm not going to look at the snake. I'm not going to believe in the sun. But there are some, there's some who acknowledge the truth. I'm a sinner. I've been bitten by a snake and there's no cure. I'm separated from God and I can't bridge the gap. I'm weak and I'm powerless. And I acknowledge that God has made a way for me through Jesus. That He's the bridge. That He's the one who reconciles me. That His death is enough to forgive me of my sins and to bring me into right relationship with God. And those people respond positively to the light. Just like God desires for everyone to be saved, God shines light in the life of every person. You think of, in your mind, what's the most spiritually remote, the most spiritually dark place that you can think of? There's light there. may not be much, maybe a matchstick, but there's something there. Paul says in Romans 1, 19 and 20, that no excuses. God has left a witness everywhere. There is some light. We got tons here. Other places don't have as much. What are you going to do with the light that you've been shown? That's God drawing you to himself. Are you going to respond positively and say, I'm going to acknowledge the truth. I need Jesus. Are you going to be you going to step back and say, I don't want to be exposed. I'm going to choose to stay in the dark. As we wrap up this morning, let me ask you this question. What are you doing with this? profound love of God in your life. Many of you have kids. If not, you can imagine the scenario. Who would you sacrifice your kid for? Write their names in your mind. Who would you sacrifice your child for? Your child's life for theirs. How long is the list? One, one person? Maybe your spouse? Paul says in Romans 5, 6 through 8, for a, a virtuous person, someone a righteous person, someone may die, maybe for someone who's good. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were still actively rebelling against him, Jesus died for us. Can you fathom the depth of love that God has for you? He preferred you over the life of his own son. He sent his son to die in order for the opportunity to be reconciled to you. How are you responding to that great love? There's an initial response. It's called being born again. It's repenting of your sins and putting your faith in Jesus. You can see there that passage from Ephesians 2. While we were enemies of God, while we were under his wrath, out of his great love, he reconciled us to himself through the death of Jesus. It's a paraphrase of what that says. Have you made a decision to respond to the light? You may be feeling something physically, kind of like butterflies. That's the Lord drawing you to himself. You may not, but that's sometimes there's a physical sensation. 
God's drawing you to himself. He's not going to compel you. He's not going to compel you. He's looking for sons and daughters, not slaves. But he's going to draw you, and you have to decide, are you going to step into that light, or are you going to stand back in the darkness? If this morning you're sitting here and you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never put your faith and your trust in him, let me encourage you to do so. Paul says in Romans 8, this one who's given us his only son, how much more will he not give us all things? He's trustworthy. And the cross demonstrates that. If he was willing to send his own son to die for you, how much more will he not take care of you in your life? Many of you have already made that decision. You put your faith and your trust in Jesus and you can remember when. And that's wonderful. And so my question to you is, are you continuing to respond to this magnificent love of God in your life? In Ephesians 4, 1, Paul says, live worthy of your calling. Live worthy of that. Don't hear that as earn that. Don't hear that as deserve that. It's not how it works. But live a life that's a, that reflects your appreciation and your thankfulness and your gratitude for this deep love that God has for you. If you don't like that idea of living worthy of your calling, live worthy of this love that God has lavished upon you. Ephesians is an interesting book. It's not necessarily written to one church. It's written to a group of churches. And Paul wanted it to to get passed around. So it has this kind of general flavor to it. It's easy to grab stuff. And in Ephesians 1 through 3, it's this lofty theology. Here's what God has done for you in Jesus. And it's all kind of up here in the clouds. And then the last three chapters, 4 through 6, is so here's how you live. Boots on the ground. Because of all these things God has done for you in Jesus, then here's how that truth should affect your life. And what holds it together is this prayer at the end of Ephesians 3. And the heart of that prayer is there on the screen that you would know and that I would know the height and width and breadth and depth of the love of Jesus, the love of God. It's it's our understanding, our comprehension of his love for us that makes sense of what God has done for us in Jesus, and that also fuels us to live obediently over time. Otherwise, we wind up becoming, we burn out. We're on the religious treadmill of performance if you haven't been captured by the love of God. So my question for you, how are you responding to his love this morning? You may need to make an initial yes towards him. He's already made a huge yes towards you in the sending of his son. You may have already responded positively to that. And so then the question is, how are you now responding to this love of God? If if you don't pray that prayer, if you're if you're someone who prays and that Ephesians three prayer is not something that you're regularly praying, I would say as a at a minimum, begin to pray that God help me to know how wide and high and long and deep is your love for me, not us for me. I want to know that. If you begin to know that, it'll change everything about how you relate to him and how you live. Let's take a minute and pray. I'm going to ask you this question. We believe God speaks directly to his people. He doesn't need uh, a mediator like me to, to do that. The Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. And so we're going to take a minute. And if you're willing, I want you to pray this prayer before the Lord and trust that he'll speak to you. He's not going to speak to you through your ears. That's not how it works. He's going to speak to you internally. You'll have a, it'll be a sense that may have an emotional component. It may be something that you may kind of refer to as something like your intuition, just kind of that knowing. There may be specific words associated with it.
And this is the prayer I want you to pray before the Lord if you're willing. God, am I living a life worthy of my calling? Or, God, am I living a life worthy of this extravagant love that you've demonstrated for me in the sending of your Son? You just pray that in your heart and see what the Lord would say to you. Don't be scared of what He would say. Remember, He's already demonstrated His commitment to you by sending His Son. You can trust Him. Some of you may heard have sensed this kind of unqualified yes, and that's excellent. Rejoice in that and be thankful. And I would say pray that the Lord would continue to deepen your understanding of His love for you and give you grace to live a life worthy of that love. And for many of us, probably what you heard was, yes, you're doing great, and let's look at this. There's this area. There's this one area. In that area, you're not living worthy of your calling. In that area, you're not living worthy of this extravagant love. Basically, you're not trusting me is most likely what it comes down to. You're grumbling a little bit in that area like the Israelites. I'm tired of this food. I don't know where you're taking us. What would it look like for you this morning to submit and commit that area to him? For most of us, when we get scared, it's because we don't truly grasp how much God loves us. First John 4, perfect love casts out fear. God's love for us is perfect, and it does drive out the fear that so many of us wrestle with when it comes to giving things to the Lord, the things that we care about the most, whether that be members of our family, whether that be our, our future in terms of our career, our finances for some of us, our own physical health. It can be difficult to commit those things to the Lord. And oftentimes, it's because we're not really sure we can trust Him. And the reason we're not sure we can trust Him is because we don't know. We haven't become convinced of the height and the width and the breadth and the depth of His love for us personally. It's easy to cliche God's love. And I want to encourage you this morning to not do that. Pray for God to awaken you to that reality. And then to live into and out of that reality every day. And now in these moments, I want to encourage you to respond. If you've never made a decision for Jesus, let today be the day. The offer from Him is on the table. Your condition, whether you realize it or not. Your death warrant's already been signed. You're a dead man or woman walking. But you don't have to be. If you'll believe in the Son this morning, you'll inherit eternal life. That's where you are this morning. We want you to come forward and let our ministry teams talk with you and pray with you. You may be someone many of you have already made that decision. I want to encourage you if what you sensed in your heart from the Lord was yes and. Would you be faithful to commit that and to the Lord? To say before Him this morning, I want to live a life worthy. Not to earn, 
and deserve what can't be earned or deserved. But I have gratitude and thankfulness for what you've done. We'd love to pray with you about whatever that and is in your life this morning. So, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you move in each of our hearts? We'd respond faithfully to you. And I do pray for every man and woman in this room that we would each and all know the depth of your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can stand. We'll have ministry teams here up in the corners. Again, we'll pray with you about whatever you have going on. But if the Lord's stirring your heart in one of those ways, please let us pray with you about that.